Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. This month, we're talking about a new article out in Nature towards a rigorous understanding of societal responses to climate change. Dagmar de Groot is lead author on the paper, which has 17 other co-authors, including myself, Emma Mosswild. Here's our conversation about the publication and what it means for climate history. So can you describe how this article came to be in its current form as a paper in Nature and how you, how you got to this point, you and your co-authors? Sure, yeah. So the origins of this article, I think, actually go quite far back in time. And they really started with when I was working on, uh, on The Frigid Golden Age, which uh, was my first book. And the argument of that book was that in a period of global crisis, as Jeffrey Parker has called it, you know, uh, one of the best known climate historians, when climatic cooling um, you know, reduced or interrupted growing seasons, uh, reduced food supplies, provoked uh, famine, starvation, epidemic outbreaks, migration, conflict. In that period, there was a society in the Dutch Republic um, that did relatively well. And I presented this as a kind of exception to the rule, right? Um, I tried to figure out what were the causes for that exception. And I found, you know, it's, sometimes people have said that, you know, I found that the society was adaptive and resilient. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I found that the impact of climate change on this society, the Dutch Republic, was ambiguous. So you've had some areas where you see, you know, they're climatically influenced disasters, but at the same time, there are wellsprings of resilience and adaptation that were previously, I would argue, uh, not really thought about, not really uh, considered adequately. Um, and what got me to thinking a little bit more broadly was that the Dutch Republic had been lumped in previously with other examples of societies that did poorly amid one of the coldest phases of this period of climatic cooling that we call the Little Ice Age. I should, for those people who are not familiar with it, that's in the 16th and, and 17th centuries. So it seemed to do, uh, it seemed to do poorly in existing scholarship. And by looking beyond political crises and thinking more about economics and, and culture and military affairs, I guess, you know, campaigns as they happened, uh, I think I was able to find examples of, of climate having more complex influence on the society. And that got me into thinking, well, you know, if I was able to do that for the Dutch Republic, could it be that some of these other societies that are perceived to have undergone crises, you know, really had a more complex experience with climate change? And that there's examples of adaptation and resilience beyond just as what I've been calling this one exception. Um, and is that the case not only for one of these coldest phases of the Little Ice Age, but maybe for the whole human experience of climate change? Um, and I thought to myself, well, if, if, if that's the case, and we can find these sorts of examples of resilience and adaptation, that would be really valuable, not just for how we understand the past, but potentially also for how we use history to better understand the present and prepare for the future, right? It seems like it would be relevant and important to know if there were sort of common patterns that society shared or population shared that helped them respond effectively to climate change in the past, bearing in mind that present day climate change is of a you know, different magnitude than what has been experienced on earth for thousands and thousands of years. So I, I kind of had these ideas percolating in my mind. And the question for me was, do I want to write a single authored book that would ex you know, examine case studies of communities, populations that seem to do well in periods primarily of climatic cooling, but maybe even in anthropogenic global warming so far? Um, do I, I want to work on an edited book, right, where I'm drawing from 
different authors all contributing their area of expertise, so lots of different case studies. Or do I want to see if, if, if I can do a co-authored article in a major scientific journal? So um, kind of wrestled with that for a while. And then um, actually, it wasn't that long after Trump was elected that, <laughs> that for some reason this took on a different kind of urgency for me, because I think a lot of us expected after he was elected that carbon emissions would go up dramatically in the United States and that we would lose all this time, right, for confronting climate change. And as we saw in our previous podcast, the, the real picture is a little bit more, um, it's, a, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But in any case, these are fears that I had. So I put in a bunch of applications for grants at Georgetown University for various initiatives, including this one. You know, again, this idea of looking at the past to kind of better understand what we should be doing in the future and in the present. Um, and this was partly accepted. So <laughs> we got enough money from the Georgetown Environment Initiative. Um, we got enough money to host one workshop. So in that workshop, this was before you came to uh, Georgetown, Emma. Um, otherwise you would have been part of it. But we, we got scholars um, at Georgetown, Kate DeLuna, uh, Jacob Burnham, and also some people that I knew that were working on these kinds of issues. Um, from North America and Europe, primarily, and China actually as well. So either physically or virtually, we brought them together in a workshop where everybody kind of described the project that they were working on, um, uh, how they're looking at resilience. And actually we also brought in some paleoclimatologists like Kevin Anchikaitis, who's been interviewed uh, in this podcast, of course, um, to talk about how they work with paleo sources and, and integrate that with climate history. Um, now at the workshop, so I was pushing for this resilience, resilience, resilience uh, focus, but the people who came to the workshop um, suggested that, okay, that might be part of it, but we should, what we could also do is um, try and really emphasize how this field climate history could be made to be more complex or sophisticated, I guess, you know, for lack of a better word. I'm a little uncomfortable with that terminology. Um, but I guess what I mean to say is that there has have been systematic sort of issues, problems in climate history that we might want to explore. We might want to try and figure out how we create more nuanced narratives of the influence of climate change on human history. And, you know, I, we, we can get to that in a in a couple minutes, I guess. But this, this was sort of a focus that came up in this workshop. And it seemed to me like we could either do, you know, an article on resilience or an article on how we need to have, you know, these more complex narratives of, you know, climate and history. But as I started thinking about it more, like how do we integrate these two things? I started believing that by um, altering the sort of method by which climate history was done and by trying thereby to find more nuanced connections between climatic and human histories in the past. Um, we might also bring more of these examples of resilience and adaptation to light, partly because those examples can be more difficult to find in the past. You know, it's, it's easy to find, let's say, documentation about harvest failure, about war, about these disasters, right? And relatively easy to uh, think about how they might be connected to climate change. But that can be harder to do, let's say, when nothing happens, right? How do we connect a null event, basically, right, to climate change? That can be much harder to try and, to try and do. And you need, I think, a more rigorous process for that, um, a more rigorous method. So um, that's how we kind of landed on this idea of integrating those two halves, um, integrating essentially those two articles into one. Um, at that point, uh, I had developed this kind of method for how the article might be completed. I figured, well, I would work on sort of the methodology stuff. Kevin Anchikaitis, Elena Zoplaki, our paleoclimatologists would work on explaining how, you know, the little ice age was more complicated uh, maybe than some people had thought it was. You know, it wasn't just this period of homogenous cooling 
There were all kinds of different climate anomalies. So you gotta be careful with how you connect that to human history. And then I'd solicit case studies from co-authors all around the world. And I was kept asking more co-authors to join. How we did that, but before we were completely done with that process, Kevin Anjikaita suggested, you know, you might, you might be able to try um, nature. Um, you know, there's an editor at Nature, uh, Michael White, who might be interested in this sort of thing. And, you know, for me, and I know that not everybody feels the same way, but for me, nature, it was kind of a dream that I might someday get something published in nature. Because, you know, for those people who are not in academia or maybe more in history than in science or what have you, nature is, you know, frankly, several orders of magnitude more influential um, than even the top history journals. Right? You just reach a lot more people, for better or worse, uh, with nature. Um, and um, and I, I feel like you have a bigger influence, even, you know, not just in terms of public discourse, but even in terms of scholarly discourse, if you publish in nature. Um, and so I reached out um, to uh, Mike, White and submitted ultimately a synopsis of our article. And from the synopsis, we went to a rough draft and then another draft and another draft. And finally, we had something that was ready, um, was ready to publish. But this, as you know, Emma, was a long process. Um, it involved a, a lot of editing, a lot of case studies that have to be dramatically shortened, um, a lot of hard thinking about methodology. Um, a lot of statistical work that never entered into the uh, into the final paper. It was a really uh, challenging process, but also one of the most enriching processes that I've that I've mm. been part of. Yeah, yeah. I know there's a lot there in that answer. <laughs> oh the, no, that's great. That's great. So, can you break down for our listeners what the main findings of the paper? are, what, what this paper says, um, and then what you hope others take away from it. The paper argues that there have been systematic problems in efforts to connect climatic change to human history. And these systematic problems, primarily but not exclusively methodological problems, have led to an overemphasis on stories of disaster and collapse in particular. And that if we develop, if we follow a more rigorous research process, and we can talk about what that looks like, you know, in a couple of minutes, but if you follow that process, you come up with um, histories that are more balanced, or it's easier to find those kinds of histories that are more balanced. It's easier to find case studies of societies that were at least partly resilient and adaptive in the face of climate change. And I say societies, but what I really mean to say is, is populations, right? Because it's not just about, no, oh, one society did well and another did poorly. That's part of the problem that we identify actually, that there are populations within societies that were able to be resilient and adaptive, sometimes at the expense of other populations. But this is an area of climate history that has been underexplored, again, because of those, those methodological issues that I mentioned. And now what are those methodological issues? Well, I think the biggest one that we flagged, and we are not the first to do this, but maybe we draw more attention to it than others have done, is the lack of disciplinary integration in the field, right? I'll give an example from my own experience, actually. And I'm one of the people I think who has been most integrated into the sciences of, you know, uh, climate historians. Um, but when I started my PhD, of course, I was working on, well, again, this kind of uh, story of the Dutch Republic. And I was collecting, you know, the science of how the climate has actually changed, the paleoscience, the paleoclimatology, and evaluating it myself, and trying to determine which articles were better than other, than other articles, and kind of teaching myself, teaching myself um, about how you reconstruct climate change and which sources might be more effective for different regions, the mechanics of the climate system, et cetera. So I was doing all that work by myself and I feel like I gained 
a fairly good picture of how it all worked by the end. But there is something slightly insane about that, right? Because there is nothing, there's nothing systematic about that really, right? It's not like I was taking courses. Um, it's my understanding of, of the climate system and, and paleoclimatology, I think was, was you know, uh, up to a certain standard by the time I was ready to publish the book, but it wasn't comparable to that of, I don't know, uh, Elna Zoplaki or Kevin Echikaitis or, or these people who have worked on that for a living for you know a long time. Specialists, in other words, right? So the problem with this kind of field, and this is not unique to climate history, but that you are inevitably working with sources and methods uh, that you can never fully understand as well as someone who has you know, been trained actually in this stuff systematically an actual, you know, <laughs> paleoclimatologist, for example. Um, and that lends itself to assumptions and distortions um, that inevitably would alter the kind of history that you're trying to say. For, for example, these are just very extreme examples, but there are many more subtle examples, but a lot of people have sort of assumed that the Little Ice Age was this period of climatic cooling. One recent book says it was a period of cooling um, up to two degrees Celsius cooler than the late 20th century average, right? Which would, which would mean that the Little Ice Age was as big in magnitude as uh, global warming might be uh, in the 21st century, right? And, and that is simply not true, right? That is off by about a factor of four, even when you're looking at the coolest decades of the Little Ice Age. When you're looking at the whole period, it might be off by a factor of 10, order of magnitude, right? And so if you're, Making that mistake, of course, the links that you make between climate change and human history are going to be distorted because a cooling of two degrees Celsius would have to have an impact on just about every aspect of human life that would be profound, right? Whereas a century scale cooling of several tenths of a degree Celsius globally, you would not think of it the same way, obviously, right? right? How big the impact would be on human history. So one of the things we call for is just this greater interdisciplinary integration to create more accurate history. And one of the best ways to do that, although I should say not the only way to do that, we're careful to say that too, is to work in what we call, what others have called John Holden, for example, uh, consilient teams. So what that means is, okay, you get some historians, some let's say archeologists, some paleoclimatologists um, working together from the ground up. So it's not like the historians conceive of the project and then bring in the scientists, right? Or the, or the other way around, which I've been part of as well. No, you all kind of imagine the project together and then see it through together as a real team. Um, so that is one of our recommendations, but you know, by no means the only one. Can you talk a little bit more about how the framework that the paper proposes um, could or will revolutionize the field of the history of climate and society broadly construed? Before I answer that question, I, I think I need to double down on what I view as being um, kind of the core challenges in the field. And I, I guess more broadly, most influential ways in which the field has been done. Um, and I think, since the days of you know the first people who did the history of climate and society, so Ellsworth Huntington at the beginning of the 20th century, for example, um, all the way through the present, uh, there has been a focus on large spatial and temporal scales of analysis to some extent. Um, and there's been a focus right on um, connecting periods of climatic cooling and in some cases drawing droughts um, to harvest failures, to epidemics, to conflict. And sometimes the links made between those things have been made by correlation, or in some cases, even kind of a, I might almost call it causation, right? And um, often one side of that equation has been much more detailed in studies than the other. So for example, you have a lot of these studies that are, have really richly detailed paleoclimatic reconstructions, but then kind of make assumptions about how those reconstructions are connected to human history 
or you have the opposite. You know, this is quite common in studies written by historians. You have richly detailed examples, you know, narratives of how societies coped with, let's say, harvest failures. But the links between those harvest failures and climate change, and in fact, the description of those climate changes, that's, uh, that's spotty at best. <laughs> uh, the detail might be lacking there, and there might be a lot of assumptions made there, a lot of kind of uh, crude correlations. So the fundamental um, uh, contribution, I think, of our research framework is just a step-by-step -step process where we encourage researchers to just ask the right questions, right? So for example, we've got these three domains that you can start looking either, you know, if you're creating one of these studies, you either start looking at climate change or you start looking at a local environmental shift or you start looking at some kind of event or trend in the social or cultural, economic, political, some area of, of human change in the past. So you can start in these three domains, which we helpfully color code. And as you're working through them, you receive questions like, okay, am I, am I asking specialists? Um, am I consulting with them? Am I working with them even in these sort of consilient teams, right? Um, am I uh, thinking through different skills of analysis? So am I looking at the local level, uh, let's say, as well as the regional or global level? And so we've got all these sort of questions that address what we consider to be recurring uh, blind spots uh, in most of the scholarship in the history of climate and society. And so our goal is that if researchers cannot answer one of these questions as they're beginning to imagine a study or beginning to work through a study, they need to stop until they can answer it or they might even need to drop the study. You know, it, not everything can be connected uh, to climate change. Um, not every climate history uh, idea will work out and actually present uh, a compelling study. And so we feel if people follow this process, then we will eventually be able to create uh, a more accurate and holistic understanding of the impacts of climate change on, on human history. Okay, so that's, that's the dream. Yeah, and I think that's what I really like about the framework is that kind of by going through the process, it becomes really clear when maybe the research question isn't isn't actually relevant to the study of past climate change. You know, maybe this is not the correct way to to conceive of of a link between environmental change and social change in the human past. And I think it's it's cool that there's now this framework that can create space for for that kind of of conscious development. Well just to jump in on that, right? It's um this framework is not a method um, necessarily, right? There's a bit of a difference there between I mean it's sort of it's a process, but it's not a single method that everybody sort of has to follow, right? It doesn't force people to adopt a certain understanding of causation, for example, right? Um, I think it compels people to think um, more rigorously about causation and how they will attempt to establish causation, but there is not a single causal method that we prescribe. And that I think is the power of this framework. It accounts for the diversity of the field. Uh, that was important to us because you do have all these people working in different disciplines. And my understanding of causation as a mostly qualitative historian is going to be different from that of a geographer who wants to work with uh, Granger causality tests and all this kind of stuff, right? Statistical methods to interpret quantified uh, social and climatic data. That's just going to be a different kind of causation. And that's okay, but we still would benefit from working through the same process. So in addition to the framework and, and the findings of the paper, this article, as you touched on earlier, is significant because of its kind of academic provenance, its, its authorship, um, the fact that it's published in Nature. And can you talk just a little bit more about why this is so important and what opportunities and avenues for future study does a paper like this offer to 
I guess, academia more broadly? There's a number of different ways that that, that to answer that. Um, I'm going to start with the significance of this article for efforts to understand the past and the impacts of climate change on the past. First of all, um, it is a major advance for scholarship, especially qualitative scholarship, and that's very important, that looks at the impact of climate change on history. That scholarship has not featured all that much in nature. The qualitative scholarship has barely featured at all. I think this is actually the first article, uh, certainly with a lead author who's a climate historian that's been published in Nature. And it is one of the few articles uh, with many authors who are historians uh, that have been published in Nature as, as far as I know. Um, so it's kind of a, a major leap forward in the reach that particularly qualitative scholarship um, in the history of climate and society or climate history um, has had. And I'm hoping that it also leads to a deeper integration of that sort of scholarship in policy documents, like for example, the assessment reports of the IPCC, which have included some reference to climate history, um, particularly the uh, statistical school of climate history or the history of climate and society, um, but very much in passing and, and even attempts to sort of forecast the impacts of global warming um, on the future almost never draw on history. Um, in fact, history is a discipline that's rarely featured um, in those efforts. And, and I'm hoping that this begins to change that um, or maybe even do it by itself. Also, and I think this is, really important, although it was sort of a, something that we thought of later on in the editing process. But, you know, including in this, this podcast, we've always used the term climate history, right? To describe this sort of scholarship that connects climate change to human history. Um, but now we coin a new term, the history of climate and society. And um, that is inherently a transdisciplinary term. Climate history is very much associated with historians, but it's clear, right, that this scholarship involves not only historians, but also archeologists and geographers and geneticists and linguists and paleoscientists, the list goes on and on and on. And it could in fact incorporate even more scholars from different disciplines. Um, and so what we needed was a term overarching framework for that, that, uh, that will now be associated, partly because it's been published in such a, an influential journal, um, with that whole field, not just the historians working in the field. And that then might lead to closer integration, exactly what we call for, closer integration between specialists and different disciplines. Um, it's also, in my view, important to publish this in Nature, because there's been a lot of, I mean, there's enormous amount of effort towards mitigation, climate change mitigation, right? Which is phenomenal, of course, goes without saying. And there's been, there's an increasing consideration of environmental justice, which is equally important. Um, but adaptation, in my view, adaptation to build resilience to climate change is kind of a distant third um, maybe second, but it's certainly not viewed as, you know, on par with mitigation. And, and the efforts towards it are not, at least in this country, are not comparable to those which are now beginning to go to mitigating climate change. And in a sense, it's a false dichotomy, because the more you mitigate, the less you have to adapt, right? But we know, regardless, that we already have to do more adaptation to warming as it stands today, one degree Celsius of warming relative to the late 20th century average. And we have to do an awful lot more adaptation in the future. And this article, at least in part, shows that societies have been able to cope with climate change by adapting, sometimes in uh, pretty dramatic ways, sometimes in order to build resilience. And that I think is a very uh, powerful lesson that will now reach I hope a lot of people through this article that the past tells us not only that societies were vulnerable to climate change 
and that they endured crises as a result of climate change. That, by the way, we're, we're not suggesting that that wasn't the case in this article. The past does show us that, but it also shows that societies have been able to adapt effectively, and we had better get on that uh, ASAP, uh, both in this country and in other countries. So just in terms of shaping public discourse, I hope that this article um, has big reach. And I wanna go back, I, I was talking about qualitative um, climate history and how this is one of the first qualitative articles to be published in Nature. I think that's really important too. Um, you know, there's often this assumption that quantitative, something that can be quantified and modeled that presents a higher form of knowledge. And of course, that is an assumption that's intimately connected to the sciences. And it yields a certain hierarchy of knowledge and systems of knowledge that I think have discouraged consilient approaches um, in uh, the history of climate and society. Right? It's a little bit more complicated than that, the reasons that the, these kinds of approaches have been dis discouraged, and we can talk about that from different perspectives uh, in a couple minutes. But I think at least part of the problem has been that there, there has been this assumption that there's a hierarchy of how knowledge is created with kind of his qualitative historical methodology at or near the bottom. Um, to have something like this published in Nature, you know, shows that that's not, that is not the case and reveals that, you know, the people who are in charge of these journals now increasingly accept that there's other valid ways of constructing knowledge. Um, and that if you pursue that kind of knowledge, you can get published in a journal like Nature. And I, I actually think that is extremely powerful and hopefully will be influential. So those are a few different reasons why I think this matters so much. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you brought that up because I want to ask about this kind of collaborative scholarship and if you can share some of the benefits and the challenges of this kind of work, you know, with the hope, like you said, that it'll become more common. Um, and then as we frequently ask, on this podcast, um, what you would recommend to others interested in in doing this kind of work um, or in you know in publishing in this manner? Sure. Uh, well, Anna, you know I've kept you up to date on the on the trials and tribulations of developing this project, mm -hmm. and rated with you quite a bit over the last year or so. Um, so you you have as much insight as anyone <laughs> to this. Um, it, I, I want to start though with uh, the benefits. <laughs> That's probably a healthier way to do things. Um, I think that on a very basic level, I think I've learned more from this project um, than from anything I've worked on other than maybe the frigid golden age. Um, and there have been lessons about you know, disciplines that I knew about but wasn't an expert in. And there have been lessons about process and project management and that sort of thing. Um, in terms of working with, you know, we, we have almost 20 co-authors that are part of this paper. So um, this paper is a reflection of their brilliance, hard work, um, and their unique perspectives. And I want to highlight that uh, in this interview. You know, it's not just me who did this. We've got a lot of great people working on, on the project, including yourself. And I, I learned from everybody, right? So I've, of course, everybody contributed case studies. Uh, almost everybody contributed case studies. Everybody contributed something valuable to the paper, um, whether it was scrutinizing methods and statistical approaches in climate history, which is of course what what you did, um, particularly around agriculture, or um, you know, providing new insights about uh, the uh, economic history of, of market integration in Europe and beyond, um, or case studies from many different parts of the world, or um, in the case of Kevin Anchikaitis and uh, Eleanor Zoblaki, um, these kinds of rigorous, um, and really cutting edge 
descriptions of what we now know about the Little Ice Age, how we should interpret uh, diverging climate reconstructions using different source ensembles, paleo source ensembles, or different statistical methods. You know, I learned a lot from everybody's contribution. Um, and, uh, and, and particularly, I learned a lot actually from working with Kevin Anchikaitis. Um, so I wanna shout out to Kevin Anchikaitis who starred already, as I already mentioned uh, on this podcast. That was a really fruitful collaboration. And we probably sent like a hundred emails to each other uh, over the course of the last year, year and a half. Um, but it just taught me, you know, there's, there's plenty of things I didn't know even about paleoclimatology and historical climatology as my child screams in the background. <laughs> let's, let's, let's keep that in. It just uh, it shows the unique work environment. A little bit of local <laughs> color, yeah. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> unique pandemic work environment. Um, I also learned how to work alongside children, yeah, uh, while writing a nature article. That was fantastic. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot that I... I didn't know about areas that I thought I knew more about than, than most um, climate historians. Um, and you know, there's mistakes that I was going to make in this article that Kevin Anchikaitis scrubbed out of the article, put it that way. Um, and, and so I think that was, that was really helpful. And together we also developed this, um, you know, working in team, we kind of developed this method of interrogating our work and openly criticizing it, right? Now, that is actually a big part of this article that a lot of the problems that we identify in this field, we made ourselves, we acknowledge that we made them in our previous scholarship, that we were making them again in this article and would have actually made them in the published version had we not all been working together. Um, so it was, it was kind of like a super peer review, right? Where 20 people all look at each other's work um, and in a very multidisciplinary disciplinary way interrogate that work. Um, so, you know, a lot of the case studies, uh, Kevin Anjikaitis and others went through and identified problems with how they're using paleoclimatic evidence. Um, or, you know, I uh, and, and other people went through and found, you know, the links you're making between, uh, let's say the harvest failure and the social response are not as convincing as they might be because you're leaving out the mechanics. That's another big part of our process, actually, the mechanics by which things happen. Probably should have stressed that, stressed that a little bit more earlier. Um, but a lot of times people forget about these mechanics, right? It's not just enough to show correlation. You have to show causation through a bunch of interlocking processes. We really emphasize that. Um, so a lot of the most important insights in the article are the product of uh, discussions between between uh, you know, a group of people, which we wouldn't have had without, without well, this kind of conciliant approach. Um, it's also because we had all these people working together that we were able to publish in, an article, in a journal like Nature. If it was just me, right, or just a couple of historians coming up with something, uh, the odds would be a lot lower that we can get it published in Nature. You know, that's another thing, right, that I learned is how to kind of craft you know, a nature, this is a nature review, so it's, it doesn't, you know, follow the typical structure of a scientific article, but how to write in a way that uh, is accessible to scientists and really to people in, in every different possible kind of discipline. Then I mentioned project management too, and, and that was one of the most enriching parts of this, this whole process. Um, you know, basically you learn how to, it's almost like running a small business, right? You learn how to manage a team of 20 people and uh, solicit their contributions, recruit more people, deal with potential issues, friction, um, you know, get outputs from different people, um, the delicate process of actually doing that interrogation of people's uh, contributions, right? Some of which were already published elsewhere. Um, it was a real process, as you know, um, incorporating divergent ideas for uh, what the final article should look like. It was, um, it was really challenging, but by doing it, I think um, you learn how to manage these projects a lot better in the future and, and you know, how to assign goal posts and um, 
you know, how to keep people up to date in a way that's constructive. There's just, there's a lot of these sort of elements to designing a project like this that you're not really taught, at least not with a history PhD, right? But um, I think are, are valuable, really not just for this kind of work, you know, publishing a, a co-authored article, but also if you're in academia for service obligations or if you're outside of academia, obviously often you have to run teams of people um, or even for teaching in my case, um, I think it's helped me to be a clearer um, uh, teacher uh, as well, uh, to give students uh, a better understanding of, of my expectations and their responsibilities, put it that way. So it's had a lot, a lot of benefits for me. Um, the drawbacks, however, I don't want to sugarcoat. Um, one drawback that, uh, you know, you and I have discussed is fundamentally, it has to do with the nature of the historical profession. And, and it's not just the historical pro profession that has this problem, but we really prioritize single authored publications, right? Um, and, um, you know, in, often in historical journals. So a co-authored article in Nature in many different departments is not gonna be viewed in the same way as a single authored publication in, I don't know, let's say past and present, which is a, for those of people who are not in the historical profession, that's a very influential journal uh, in history. Even though, you know, the influence might be much greater uh, and the amount of work involved might be much greater as well. So there's that kind of problem in the historical profession, because if you're getting less in terms of your career, career milestones and progression out of an article like this, and it takes more work, you're not gonna be as keen to do it, especially if you're more junior. Like, I don't know if I would have done this if, uh, if I didn't have tenure, frankly, right? Um, so that's got to change, I think, in the historical profession, especially as more and more people work on issues like history of climate and society or, or historical epidemiology, to mention two examples. Um, but it, right now, you have to be honest in saying that that's a real drawback, which is one reason why we don't say everybody who does this scholarship has to follow this process, has to do the conciliant approach, rather. Um, you know, we don't. We don't say that because that's, that's not going to be possible for everybody. Um, other drawbacks, um, you know, this was just really time consuming, as you know, right? And, you know, the length of the article, if it was a single authored article, I would have gotten that out potentially within months. This took um, from the workshop to when it's going to be published about two years, right? So, um, and that includes a pandemic year that feels like 10 years. So let's say 11 years. And so, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a major time commitment, obviously. Um, and, uh, and again, that, you know, relates to that first issue, right? If it's gonna take that much time, it needs to be recognized for the contribution that it is within these, you know, departments that still prioritize the single author publication. Um, so those are, you know, two challenges. They're probably not the only ones. Um, I guess if I would say one more, that just comes to mind now is, you know, we publish this in Nature, which is phenomenal. Um, and I think that has enough reach that it would still be appreciated and read even by, uh, you know, a lot of more humanistic or social scientific scholars. However, yeah, the odds are very high when you submit something to nature that it's going to be rejected. Um, and you might publish uh, for the benefit of your scientists, let's say, in a niche scientific journal. Or, you know, the other way around, if you're a scientist, you might find yourself publishing in a, in a historical journal that does very little for your career as, as well. So there's these issues of, and they kind of all stem from the same thing, right? That disciplinary cooperation and its side effects are not sufficiently appreciated by uh, some departments and some disciplines. Yeah, I think I'm really glad though that you brought up the learning process and the, the many benefits of collaboration because 
you know, this is a pretty common thing to talk about in the kind of work that we do. Um, and I don't think that I hear enough people talking about just the, the actual process and how useful and constructive it is. You know, there's a lot of talk about we should do more of this and the, this is the way to do it. Um, and here are the various challenges that we face, but um, just the, the really unique opportunity to do this kind of work um, you know, across continents and time zones in the middle of a pandemic with so many qualified people is such a privilege. So I think that is important to, to really emphasize despite the many, many challenges. Well, yeah, if, if I could add something to that, um, and this is, you know, I haven't really thought that um, much about how to articulate this, but in terms of the sort of the best practices, I guess, that, that I learned partly through this project and frankly, partly through running stuff like historicalclimatology.com and a climate history network, it would be that, um, what you really need is to keep everybody focused on a set of time-sensitive goals, right? Um, it can't, this cannot be a kind of meandering process. You have to make sure that you get everybody on the same page in terms of, okay, when will this be submitted? How will this be submitted? How will this be incorporated, let's say, into a Google Doc? How are we going to go through that Google Doc? You have to spell out the process in very, very clear terms for everybody and do it repeatedly with repetition if necessary. And then if you have um, an issue, for example, let's, let's say this, this came up, um, archeology span is not, as a discipline, is not really um, uh, sufficiently represented in this article, which purports to be transdisciplinary. Well, you know, you get together basically like a focus group almost of archeologists that are working with you in the team and just you know, have a, a meeting with them, a short meeting with them, arranged around a set of clear goals, what you wanna get out of that meeting. You work through those goals systematically, and then you develop a process by which, okay, you are going to contribute this to the article, you're gonna contribute that by this time. You know, it's all about you know, these sorts of skills that are not, let's be honest, not usually associated with academics. Right, so, and that's in part because we're not trained around these kinds of skills, maybe as much as we should be. Again, project management skills. Um, and then throughout, one thing that I really pri prioritize, I hope, as you know, um, in many different aspects of who I am, I suppose, as a professional is, is having an open exchange of feedback um, and, um, and an equal exchange actually as well, which I find, really important. So creating these opportunities for people to constantly um, tell me what I'm doing wrong, what we should be doing better, how we can improve uh, the kind of product that we're all working on together, having something that's truly the product of a collective rather than just, you know, hammering something out by yourself and then seeing if people like it, basically, right? But, but that's key to this too, that these projects have to be, have to represent the general, genuine interaction of diverse perspective, perspectives across disciplines, um, and in this case, also across cultures and countries, right? Um, and so, frankly, seniority levels as well, um, from the ground up, right? That is something that's really central to what we're proposing here for the field. I wanna shift gears and ask a little bit about popular audiences and the general public and how they um, might encounter this work. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, and as we all know, this paper is published in Nature, you know, a, an academic journal, which a non-academic uh, person on the street may have heard of in contrast to something like past and present. Um, and I'm wondering what you think about how, how can we make sure that academic findings like those in this paper are properly communicated and accessible to popular audiences and 
maybe how do you how do you envision a general audience encountering and receiving this article? Yeah, I'll start with the last part and then how we are working to get those messages out there. And maybe I'll mention the message that I hope they don't take out of this article too. Um, so first, the, one of the key messages of the article, I think, is that the past does not show us um, that populations, societies are doomed to collapse and crumble and endure crises when climate changes. I feel like that is a very important message because, and we've talked about this a little bit, um, there has been a discourse, I think, in, in, in climate discussion that has been, you know, echoed from the New York Times to the New Yorker and, and, and New York Magazine, lots of New York stuff. <laughs> um, apparently a lot of media comes from there, but you see, you see it kind of everywhere that, that, we, are, that we are doomed, right? Um, climate change will, will destroy everything and there's nothing we can really do about it, so we might as well accept it. That's sometimes called doomerist, right? Um, or, you, you know, a variant of that is if we don't act within 10 years, we're doomed kind of a thing, right? Um, and in my view, you know, this kind of doomerist discourse, first of all, I don't think it's, it's, um, it's based on a sort of a rigorous understanding of how the climate is changing and what impact climate change may have on human affairs. Certainly not based, in my view, again, on a rigorous understanding of how the energy matrix is beginning to change um, globally. But also more importantly, a lot of this discourse is based on the past and that especially I don't feel is, is justified. Um, and this article I hope will be influential in, in showing that the past tells us something more complex. Um, now, one of the reasons why I think that that message is so important is because I think the Doomerist discourse is profoundly disempowering and actually by seeming to draw more attention to the crisis of climate change, it makes it less likely that we can actually address it, right? Because I think, you know, that kind of Doomerism leads to a kind of nihilism where you might as well just accept what's, what's going to happen. If, if we are doomed, then why do anything, right? Um, and so it's not only is it inaccurate, I actually, and Michael Mann has talked about this a little bit, so have many others, but I think it serves the interests of fossil fuel companies to actually have this out there, you know, and all the other skeptics that exist um, or skeptics, deniers that exist. So, you know, this is pushing back on that. Um, I would see it as a, it's pushing back on this kind of rising threat of nihilism that um, threatens climate action. Um, it's also, as, as we discussed, I hope that an important lesson that people take out of it is that adaptation is incredibly important. It's not prescribing strategies, this article for adaptation necessarily. It identifies pathways by which societies were able to be resilient and adaptive to climate change, five different pathways. But that doesn't mean that it prescribes um, policy action. Like one of the pathways is migration. And while migration within um, a country's borders might be advisable, for example, migration from areas of California that are most prone to wildfires, you know, it doesn't give the specifics of how we should migrate from those areas and what policy should be uh, implemented. However, it does, I hope, it will, I hope, give people an understanding that, you know, adaptation has to be nearly as important as mitigation and uh, has to be a part of environmental justice going forwards. Um, to be able to create, to be able to say, okay, the city is now um, adapted to, let's say, the worst case scenarios of sea level rise over the past 150 or, or over the coming 150 to 200 years, let's say, right? That's the kind of adaptation. And there's so many others, you know, uh, in the United States uh, that relate to the power grid, for example, and how that has to be modernized. 
the list goes on and on and on and on. But adaptation has to be a priority. So I hope that that comes out too. One message that I hope will not come out um, and that we are going to have to work in order to prevent from coming out is this idea that the past shows us that climate change is not a big deal. Right? That societies were able to cope with it just fine. We'll be able to cope with it too. And so it's, maybe it's too expensive to um, uh, try and mitigate and adapt to climate change now. We've done it before, whatever. Why well, care about what's happening now? And so we emphasize, we say in the article that global warming is of course un unprecedented um, in terms of the challenge that it poses. Um, but in our media strategy, which I'll discuss in a moment um, briefly, in our media strategy, we will also kind of hammer home on this point, right? That the past shows us that modest climate changes, which we identify with the Little Ice Age and an earlier period called the Late Antique Little Ice Age, also a period of cooling. These modest climate changes, pre-industrial societies were able to, many, in many cases, were able to cope with, or at least communities within those societies. But, you know, the change that we're looking at, you know, in, in individual years, you might see one, even two degrees Celsius of cooling across decades, you know, maybe almost one degree Celsius, maybe less in particular regions. But globally, you're looking at several tenths of a degree Celsius, right? And, you know, if we don't do anything, according to business as usual scenarios, um, there's some controversy about this. A lot depends on how sensitive Earth's climate is to carbon emissions and some other things, but we might be heading to three degrees Celsius of warming over the course of the 21st century, right? So just the magnitude of change and that's warming globally. So that means that the Arctic, for example, uh, which is already warming three times more than the global average, will get that much hotter. And all the consequences and complications of that, that this is change on a different order of magnitude than what we're looking at in the paper. And our societies are in some ways more vulnerable and in some ways less vulnerable um, to, that, to that change, uh, which also complicates our attempts to uh, connect the past to the present. Not to say it can't be done, but we have to be very careful in what lessons we, we draw from the past. And certainly a lesson that is not accurate is, uh, is that we don't have anything to fear from, from global warming. Um, so we, we want to emphasize that in our, in our media strategy. This is still one of the greatest, if not the greatest crises that we face uh, in the decades and maybe even the centuries to come. Um, now, in terms of how we're doing this kind of media strategy, this is very, very different um, from how you might you know, approach writing an academic article in a different discipline for a different paper, right? Because nature has so much reach, um, in fact, nature itself sends a uh, message to press offices at universities for co-authors of its articles. Um, because it has so much reach, you do have to try and craft a strategy for how articles, major articles in nature are received uh, in the press. And so that entails doing things like writing a press release, maybe even writing a policy brief, having a set of questions and answers that co-authors have ready for them for how they might relate to the media that structures their interactions with the media. Um, having co-authors also reach out independently to their press offices at their universities. So it's not just nature, but also the co-authors who are bringing this to the attention of universities. That's a whole push that hopefully will frame how the article is received by the public. And, you know, I, I did some of that around uh, my first book, Editors work with you to do that if you publish in trade press books, but certainly I never did that for an article in the journal. And I never did that to this extent. So um, that's another area where it helps to work in a team, right? Because you greatly magnify your voice potentially if you are working with people in let's say 10 different un universities and institutes who are all working through their press offices. It's, uh, it gives the article a lot more purchase. So, I just want to wrap up our conversation by asking what your hopes for this project are as it finally goes out into the world. You've mentioned, kind of touched on this already, um, 
but as we know in pandemic time we've been working on this for 11 years so um <laughs> and, it, and in real time it's been you know it's it, it has been years in the making so what what are your hopes uh for this paper yeah i i, I want to talk about my hopes for the paper but also i guess the impact that the paper at least has on my career and, and how i think about my work um my hope for the paper my dream for the paper, and this is just a dream. I don't know if this is going to be a reality or not. I always find it difficult to know when something's going to be popular and influential and when it's not, although getting something published in nature is a good start. Um, my dream is that it will encourage a new kind, not a new kind actually, but encourage a more rigorous kind of scholarship in the history of climate and society that is much more trans, multi, inter, cross, pluridisciplinary, <laughs> um, and that pays more attention to examples of resilience and adaptability, which I, I should say that archeologists have looked at for quite a while, but I think other people in this kind of matrix of scholars who look at the past, past climate, they have not. Um, and, um, by increasing the accuracy of that kind of scholarship and the disciplinary integration of that kind of scholarship, I hope it also makes that scholarship more influential in policy discourse. I mentioned a few times that this, this article does not prescribe specific policies, but I wonder if um, scholarship of this kind can do that. In other words, and some people have done this like Mark Carey, and others, uh, Kevin and Shikaitis. Um, but I wonder if it's possible to um, create scholarship that systematically examines the past in order to prescribe certain policies or warn against certain policies uh, that we might implement now. I think it is, um, but I'd like to, I think that is not possible unless your scholarship about the past is, is more rigorous. So um, I hope we can get there as well. And maybe I hope also that it can encourage a new integration of disciplines that has not been attempted before really in the history of climate and society. Like um, uh, one of our peer reviewers suggested, well, what about psychologists? Could they contribute to this kind of work as well? And I say, why not, right? There are so many different opportunities for people in different disciplines to contribute. Um, hopefully this will, this will encourage that kind of, um, of scholarship. And, and, and maybe even it will also from my perspective as a historian, encourage historians to, um, to think a little harder about how we value uh, collaboration, especially across disciplines, right? This article, again, I think this was about as much work as you would put into a short book. And, um, you know, that should be valued, in my opinion. And I'm not saying it's not valued at Georgetown, but I would hope that it's valued in every place and in every department. Um, so, those are some hopes I have. It's, um, well, you know this, it's, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm, if not the thing that I'm proudest of with this article is that it represents the contributions of people of many different seniority levels, right? From full professors to graduate students. And I think that is actually also a really valuable lesson because it's not like the graduate students provided less valuable input, right? Um, it was really helpful to have those fresh perspectives as part of the article. And um, you know, of course, I'm hoping that that provides a boost to the careers of the graduate students, but it also provided a boost to the article. And, um, you know, it's not exactly uncommon for graduate students to work with professors in scientific collaborations, but I have a feeling that it's less common in thoroughly transdisciplinary collaborations, but hopefully this will also encourage that, um, that cooperation and participation of, of graduate students in these projects. Of course, I, I think a lot about public discourse. I've come to profoundly hate Twitter, as you know, and I've ranted and raved to people about how much I've started to hate social media because it's just, for me, it is a kind of public engagement that is ultimately usually unfulfilling. Um, and not only unfulfilling, but dispiriting. <laughs> and that's not the case for everybody. And um, I salute those people who do it really well. Um, 
you know, certainly uh, there's been many examples of that, um, especially by graduate students uh, on, on Twitter. Um, the success of niche and environmental uh, history now and a bunch of other things attest to that. But for me, you know, it's not for me. Um, and I've, I've come to realize that through the pandemic, actually. Um, just, I've been forced to spend less time on social media because any spare time I have now goes to childcare. Um, and I've been, I've been happier for it. I hope that this, however, has an impact on public discourse because I still care just as much about that. And um, for me, this kind of presents a way of, of maybe influencing and shaping public discourse that's you know, less anchored to social media <laughs> um, and maybe more constructive and, and productive for me. Um, and again, I, I really hope it, it raises awareness about the need to put adaptation um, to have that kind of be a central component of climate action and also raises awareness of the possibilities for climate action that we're not doomed. It's still possible for us to act in ways that are productive um, and that ward off catastrophic climate change, frankly. There's been, again, so many exciting developments, including here in the United States in the last week or two, that may lead us in that direction. So people don't give up hope, I hope, is, uh, <laughs> is, is one of the contributions of the article. And for me personally, um, it's been such an enriching experience for all the difficulties and for all the hard work and frustrations. It's been such an enriching experience to do this. And um, I've learned so much from collaborating with everybody. And, and again, especially from working with some of our paleoclimatologists like uh, Kevin Anchikaitis, um, that I don't know how many more single authored articles I have in me in, uh, in this field. I think my goal is to, you know, not entirely give up single authored articles because I think there are ways in which those articles can be uh, especially productive and meaningful, depending on the sources you're working at and the times and the places. But I think the bulk of my publishing in climate will now be in teams. And I'm excited about that. Already thinking about my next team for the next project. So um, yeah, for me, that's gonna be how my career evolves, I think. Fantastic. Uh, well, the paper is out in nature. It's called Towards a Rigorous Understanding of Societal Responses to Climate Change. We will leave a link to it in our show notes. Congratulations to you and your co-authors, including me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you for uh you know, asking me these great questions. And thanks especially for working on the article with me. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast.